Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I bombed so badly. It was the night before Desert Storm happened, and um, I, I bombed terribly on stage, and I was going to quit comedy. I was six or eight months into it, and I remember crying as I drove home and thinking that this dream was gone. But I remember uh, that night thinking it's never going to get this bad again. It's never going to hurt this bad again. Um, and from that moment on, I knew that it's it's either going to be this or I'm going to throw myself off a building. Not I wasn't even depressed when I thought that. I'm like, but those are your options. And I worked for, I think, another year at a day job. And once I got fired from that, I said, I'll never have another day job. And I haven't. So I think from 1992 to now, um, I've, I've never worked again. Welcome back to Industry Standard. It's me, Barry Katz. I am more than excited than you can ever know. Of course, sitting across from my guest today, he's the kind of guy that when you're around him, you could never tell if he's really that excited. You could never tell if he's really, really pumped about doing anything because he always has his game face on. But then once he gets into something, it's like he transforms in all these different directions and that's one of the things i always loved about him because he was really really serious about his craft and serious about everything and people think oh are comedians always on are they always hanging around making jokes yeah maybe if you're kevin meany for the most part comics are like you they want to win at life and they want to win at business and their mind is always turning of how they can be the best they can be. So let me tell you a little bit about Jim Norton. Jim has emerged as one of the most versatile and unique voices in comedy. He is a two-time New York Times best-selling author and sells out theaters nationwide as a respected stand-up comedian. He was a regular contributor to The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and guest on The Late Show with David Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and a host of other shows like Chelsea Lately and Inside Amy Schumer and Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. He's also appeared as an actor on numerous TV series and feature films, and as I tell him often, I believe 
He's as great an actor as he is a stand-up comedian. Thank you. He's done three-hour specials, which is incredible. Most people don't even do one. His latest special premiered, I believe, in 2013 called American Degenerate and premiered on Epics and then on Netflix. His second hour special, Please Be Offended, premiered on Epics in 2012 and was the highest rated comedy special premiere in that network's history. The album he did of Please Be Offended was released in 2013 and was listed as one of the top 10 comedy albums of that year by LaughSpin.com and Monster Rain. Jim's first hour special premiered on HBO in 2007. Other notable things I should tell you about Jim... In December of 2012, he released his fourth stand-up comedy album, No Baby For You. His third album, Despicable, was released in 2011 and debuted at number two on the Billboard comedy charts. Unbelievable. His other two comedy albums, Yellow Discipline and Trinkets I Own, made from Gorilla Hands, were released in 2002 and 2003, respectively. He is the creator of the unbelievably successful anti-social comedy tour franchise, which takes gyms and other headliners across the country for stand-up shows. So please welcome, if you will, I am so happy to have you here, Jim Norton. Thank you. Thanks. It's uncomfortable hearing my bio read. It's really weird. Like, well, I can never hear things about me listed. I just get really embarrassed. I don't watch things I do. You know, I edit. When I have to edit, but then like to watch myself on Louie or Amy, I've never seen. What's the one thing that you have watched in your career that doesn't make you uncomfortable? Um, a lot of my stand-up I can watch, other than the physical. Like I like I look at myself, my blinking or certain things I do physically irritate me. And I shot a show recently for Vice.com, a talk show. And I went over, we had four episodes shot and I want to do more of them. And watching that recently, I interviewed Mike Tyson and Dana White in the first episode. And that was something I felt really good about. Like watching this monologue and watching the interview I did with these guys, I was like really happy with how it came out. Like it was one of those things I watched over and over again. Um, and I was like, this is what I wanted. Now you interview Mike Tyson. Yeah. Okay. When's the last time you got nervous about anything? I'm talking about the kind of nervous where you notice that you're sweating a little bit more. You have that feeling in your stomach, like what's going to happen here? I think, I mean, you always, you get nervous when you do any type of a show. There's always a little bit of jitters. You'd be a moron if you didn't have jitters. You know, Carson said he got nervous every night he came out. There was something. But the last time I was petrified was um, I had gotten a call to interview Ozzy Osbourne for this uh, record release he was doing a couple years ago, maybe four years ago. And they said, it's just going to be you and Ozzy for an hour. And uh, we're going to cut it up and put it on radio stations and it will help him promote. And he's my idol. So it was, it was very frightening to know that I was going to have one hour with Ozzy. Like, what am I going to talk about for an hour? So I prepared. I had six pages of notes. And I just kind of went into it prepared. And when we sat down, we just started talking about recovery and addiction. And um, we did the hour very comfortably. But that was the last. I was almost so afraid that it went full circle and became comfortable. It was, you know, it was, it was such a scary thing that, um, you know, I, I just stopped being afraid because it was so much at stake for me. Do you think he felt your fear? No, I mean, he's a perceptive guy, but I think he's used to people having a certain feeling around him because of who he is. 
I think on that level, it's not surprising to you when people are a little not themselves, you know? So, no, I don't, I don't think that he he sensed it. I've interviewed him a lot, but this was just, you know, one hour alone, um, and I can cover pretty well. You know, you never let the audience know when you're scared, so I cover fairly well. And so what I like to do on these podcasts is I like to go way, way back, way back. So tell me about your family life and where you grew up and what was the first thing that happened that made you have any thought of going into show business? Like, where was your journey up until that point? You know, I was, uh, I'm from central New Jersey. Just, uh, in, I think Edison was where it was when I first started getting laughs. You know, I was a weird kid. When you say first getting laughs, you mean in the schoolyard? Oh, yeah, from friends. And I don't remember where it started. You know, I was very sexual when I was a kid. So most of my memories is being from childhood are sexual. Now, when you say sexual being as a kid, tell me how old you are and what do you mean you were sexual? I'm 46 now. Back then, I was probably, it was before fourth grade. It was probably first, second, third grade. Um, just me and my, and I told the story on HBO. I mean, just me and my little buddies blowing each other or me and, uh, you know, the, the little girl next door, just, you know, kissing her ass cheeks and, you know, smelling and, you know, things like that. But when you were like, how old? I would say most of that was second and third grade. If you were alone without a group of friends. Okay. Let's pretend those group, you know how certain times you can be around a group of people and they can, you can sort of start doing things that the group does. Do you feel like if you grew up alone without a group of people, which a lot of kids do, they're in a complex or in their neighborhood, there's all older people, there's, they don't have anybody. Do you feel you would have been as sexual and you would have figured out a way to do those acts with other people? Or was it your group of friends that turned you into this? Or were you the leader? You know, it was a little bit of both. Um, there's an old expression, wherever I went, there I was. Circumstances contribute. But I think that I was kind of one of those people who I just like that dopamine drip that you get from behaving addictively. So maybe it wouldn't have been sex. Maybe it would have been drinking and drugs earlier or gambling. But there was there was some that that feeling I got that rush is what I got addicted to very early. So maybe I would have been food. You know, I think food and sex are kind of close. So maybe if I wasn't, you know, having oral sex with my friends, I would have shoved a donut into my face. And that would have given me whatever comfort that I was looking for, you know. Um, so I think it would have been one thing or another. So I'm actually glad it was that and not food, you know, because the food's to me the hardest one to, to... Sex is a really hard one, but food is a brutal addiction, and that's one I'm glad I didn't get stuck with. So maybe, I don't know. I remember seeing a movie that I really enjoyed that was dark called My Own Private Idaho. Is that River Phoenix or, yeah? River Phoenix. And I believe what I learned in that film was something very, very interesting. And you tell me if I'm wrong, because based on your experiences, you would know. A little role play here, uh, if you don't mind. If I'm the John, the male John, and you're the male prostitute, and I give you $100, what do I want? Well, it could probably be one of many things. What's 95% of the time, what do I want? Um, I paid you as a prostitute $100. What do I want? Maybe closeness. You know, there, there's something that I, I think closeness more than just a release. 
Uh, and again, I've only been myself as a John, whereas the prostitute has the example of so many different Johns. But um, I think it's a sense of connection or something like that. And it's true. And I'll tell you the act that is the most requested act by the guy who pays a hundred dollars, the John to the male prostitute. I'm going to guess. Yes. It's uh, hugging or kissing. And he wants to blow the prostitute. Oh, the guy wants to. Yes, because he wants that companionship, that feeling of control, that feeling that he's the one in control and he's the one giving pleasure. It's a very interesting thing. And so when you're a young kid, yes, it, these, these things that you speak of for our audience, and I think this is really important because a lot of people don't know what it takes to get to the next level in your life and you you overcome all these obstacles and you're for Jim Norton when he was born he was in control he was not in control of where he was born where he grew up the friends that surrounded him at a young age and he wasn't in control of the emotions that were going through him he was in my humble opinion he was born with these feelings he was born with these things embedded in him. I wasn't born with the feelings of blowing my friends and them blowing me. I had my own demons and my own demons, which I will share with you because I can't believe I'm across from you and talking about this because I think it's only fair for me to say. My demons were that I was really, really bad with animals. I used to have all these cats with kittens in the house and everything like this. And these cats would have kittens and kittens. And I remember something so horrible that I did as a kid. And I don't know why I did it. Maybe it was because my dad died and I just, I was just reeling and I just was acting out. But I remember we had this little refrigerator in the basement and the and the mother cats would always be by the refrigerator in a box full of kittens. And I would take kittens and I would put them on the top of the refrigerator and have them crawl and they'd fall off like four feet onto the mother. And now, granted, I didn't kill any kittens. They never were killed. When I look back on that moment, which I'm thinking of for the first time in probably 40 years looking across from you, I realized that there's something inside me that I had to overcome and be a better person and figure out how to get out of that cycle of what I was doing and the pain that I was going through. And I remember when I got myself out of that cycle because I remember one day I came down and the, these cats were having so many kittens, they just didn't have any milk anymore. And I remember going down and seeing like two kittens that had died because they, they just didn't have enough milk to, to feed the... And I saw these dead kittens there and I thought to myself, this mother, even though it's a cat, it's not human experienced this loss and thank god it wasn't from my hands and from that moment on i never ever wanted to do anything hurtful to any animal again and i've just been when i hear of anybody doing anything i just go mental but you just jogged me because you went through this thing where 
I don't even know how you move to the next point of your life after your because when you're doing something like that with your friends, you know you're doing something wrong. Let me rephrase that. You feel like you're doing something wrong. It's a secret. It is something secretive or you know it's wrong in other people's eyes, whether or not you know morally it is. But you do feel like it's wrong, yeah. And it's your secret. And you're keeping the secret. And another year goes by and you're keeping the secret. And another year goes by. And before you know it, you start becoming a teenager. How did you handle that? Like, how did you move to the next point? Or was it just another addiction that you you went to to transfer from that one? Well, the way I started getting, you know, the, the laugh started coming at that point. Um, you know, that's how I got girls to notice me, was being funny. That was the only way girls looked at me, is if I made them laugh. So that initial experience I would have... You know, I mean, I started to just love girls and they would read my funny stories in class and then girls would be interested in me. So the addiction switches, you know, it's kind of like a love addiction too. And then it becomes pornographic, like magazines and stuff like that. Whereas you're not acting out with your friends anymore, but I'm going to the the uh, motel down the street and they used to have a porn vending machine. They would have Wii, Playboy and Penthouse every month. And I would take a screwdriver and I would like Jimmy... The uh, thing, so I would steal dirty magazines. So that kind of got me through a lot of my teen years um, before I started. You know, I didn't get laid till I was 18. So I would have, like, you know, oral sex with a few girls in the neighborhood. But uh, it was mostly porn that got me through my, uh, my teen years. So the addiction just switched. And so you're moving through and you're using humor as a way to get girls. That was it, yeah. It was the only shot I had. When you were a teenager, how often did you drink? Um, whenever it was available, you know. I mean, it got to a point very quickly, though, where it was hard to go outside sober. You know, it got to that point because the low self-esteem was already there. So, you know, when you, when you start drinking and that kind of frees you, when you don't have that, you know, you're even more withdrawn. So I would say relatively quickly it became something I had to do to feel comfortable at all. Do you still have low self-esteem? Yeah, sure. I mean, it comes out differently. Um, you know, I have a body of work for 25 years. I'm like, okay, I, I know intellectually that I'm a good comic. Like, I could write that down on paper. But sure, I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, I'm always waiting for them to realize they've made a mistake when they give me something good. Um, and it's funny, I recently, because anger is such an addiction for me, and it's such a, a place to go to that's comfortable and safe. You know what? It's so odd, and I want you to continue with yeah. that. I've known you for how long? Um, probably at least twenty years. Okay, I've never. I've, there's never been a situation where I've ever been in your presence where I've seen you angry. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things also that I love about our relationship is because you do talk about the anger issues, and I feel like I've been privy to not seeing that side of you. Yeah. It's one of those weird things where the addiction of that feel, it's a safe feeling for men. Like, you know, being sad or hurt is what's really underneath it or feeling not as good as, but that's like a really hard, uncontrollable thing. You know, anger feels like safe and comfortable and controlled. I'm mad, but the bottom, it's a smoke screen. It's bullshit. I'm, I'm usually hurt or I'm just, you know, I'm feeling like I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be accepted or whatever nonsense it is. And recently I said, I'm going to stop doing that. My ex-girlfriend, I talked to her and she's like, you got to stop. Your life is great. 
you've gotten everything you've wanted. Like, shut up. And she was right. So recently I said, I'm not going to get angry anymore like that. I'm going to catch myself. And um, it's felt really good, like, to, to not constantly feed into that. And I had something happen this weekend, which really has been bothering me. And I'm not saying the wrong things to the wrong people. I'm not yelling at people I shouldn't yell at. I'm kind of just taking it in stride and realizing it's a part of being in the business. You're going to have things happen that you don't like. But you know something, when you walked in today and I asked you something off mic, I said, are you okay? Because there's a heaviness about you today. And, and I know what you're saying, yeah. Barry, this is me, this is whatever. But I felt that there was something that was, something was happening in your life. Yeah. It's not, um, I'm better today than I was yesterday. And, and again, it's, it's not even about the event itself. It's just about, I'm so used to reacting a certain way. I'm so used to immediately reacting negatively that in this one, I'm not really, I'm like, you know, I'm saying things to my manager about it, but I'm not calling the wrong people and saying the wrong shit. But yeah, I guess today when I came in, I'm still kind of like, I want to call Colin after, um, you know, it's, it's about something being Colin Quinn, Colin Quinn. Yeah. And I actually want to call Louie. There's two guys who are Louis CK. Uh, yeah. Comedians that I know who I know have both been through experiences similar, um, way before I've gone through them. And they're both, you know, guys I respect tremendously, but I've been thinking about those guys all morning. Like I'm going to call them this afternoon. And without giving up details of what's bothering you, what's the thematic thing behind it for our audience? That's, that's I'll tell you what it is. It's it's a piece. Um, I have a show on vice.com and I'm not saying that just to plug it. It's a talk show where I interview people, like I said, and we shot sketches and one of the sketches they want to cut and I'm, I'm conflicted because there's a, I'm a, I'm a bad collaborator because I like 100% control of things, you know, cause as a comic, that's what it is. You're not in a band, you know, you're a solo act as a comedian. But I also understand that these guys really like me and they believe in what I'm doing and they might be right about the cut. Like I, I have to realize that uh, they may actually know something I don't know. And I've been, the instinct to in me is to fight any type of my stuff being edited. And it's very, uh, very frustrating to not be able to control this one. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I'm going to give you some advice that Buddy Hackett would give you. Okay? Okay. They didn't walk the last 90 feet. Do you know what that means? No. 
the people who are making the decisions on whether they're going to cut a piece that you created and put together with your comedy mind of 25 fucking years didn't walk that 90 feet from the side of the stage to the mic over 10,000 times. Your instincts are what made the piece. Your instincts are what you put into the piece. And you need to fight for your vision. And if they're right, then let the audience decide if they're right. Because you are the guy that I'm going to bet on as opposed to the person who's writing the notes for vice.com. You know, the thing with that, and that was, that's what I think. But then there's the other side where they've, they've made it. They have really given me very few notes. Like that, that's another part of me that I'm conflicted with because these guys have been great. Like they really have that in fuck with monologue jokes or interview questions. Like they were completely go ahead, man, do what you got to do. Like they really were ha- more hands off creatively than anyone I've ever worked with. Like, uh, this is just one that he feels kind of strongly about cause he feels it can hurt. Um, uh, it's not about him going, ah, that's not a good joke. Um, Jim, what's, what's the worst thing in your mind that could happen if he's right? The worst thing that could happen if he's right. And I show it, which would be up to him anyway. But is that it winds up hurting my chances of the show lasting because there's a public backlash. Um, That as a performer, my worst fear of him being right is that this is a guy who was a little detached from the process, saw it from the outside, saw something I didn't see because I'm so close to it. And then I kick and scream like a baby and get my way and then come to realize like, wow, he wasn't fucking with me creatively. He literally just did see something I didn't see. Like, and and I'm trying to balance those things because he has not stepped in with the other stuff and, and bothered me at all. He's like, that's great, man. Funny. It's, 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 if this was a guy that broke my balls, it would be much easier for me to know how I feel about it, but he's not. So it's almost like a part of me knows I should cut it. And this is what I'm struggling with. I'm, I'm hating to admit to myself that as much as I love this thing, he's saying something that I kind of deep, deep down understand might be true. And I'm hating marrying those two things. So you're saying that your instincts are telling you that you should cut the sketch. Or that he has a damn good point about it and his fear is justified. That's not what I asked you. Okay. Are your instincts, your gut instincts to cut the piece? It's, I can give you a yes on that, but it's for the reason I just said. It's for a reason that somebody else is telling you. No, no, no. Me, meaning my gut instinct is that my fans will love the piece. But my gut instinct is also that there are a lot of people who aren't that familiar with me or this character who are not necessarily radio fans who will be extremely bothered by it to a point where it makes them not want to come back. And it's one of those things where if they have a history with you that's not radio and they go, wow, we like this Jim Norton show, then you do something and they're already invested in you and they like you and they kind of, but I've only had one episode up. And then if there are people that are just starting to watch it in the second episode, I do something 
and it's not about being a joke being missed. It's about a four minute sketch that really turns certain people off completely. That's my, so my instinct is probably to cut it. And that's the hard part that is to admit. Why couldn't you save it until people get to know you better? Maybe we can. It's a very, it's very possible that we can do that. Do you uh, think Chappelle, when he was doing the white supremacist sketch with the hood, the Ku Klux Klanman, and he takes off the hood, do you think he's sitting around a room saying, "God, I wonder if I should, uh, I wonder if I should put this on," or you know, it's like, or when Family Guy did the episode where Stewie uh, blew somebody, do you think Seth MacFarlane is walking around saying, uh, "Yeah, maybe we should cut this." You're a risk taker. You know, I just wanted to see Jim Jeffries do a show. <laughs> I mean, unapologetic. I mean, just the guy goes for it. He's got great material. He offends me, and it's hard to offend me. He makes me uncomfortable. But there isn't anybody in comedy that I know of that's going to look at what he does and says, eh, you know, that guy, you know, whatever. He should reconsider what he's doing up there. That's what I just worry about with an artist and whatever. Now, granted, you have a unique process of probably doubt in your mind for a very good reason at this time in your life because you're experiencing a situation where one of the guys that you worked with is no longer on the air because of something that he did that he didn't think out on Twitter, yeah. Along, you know, and, and it's the whole thing where you just, and you said before about your anger issues. This weekend, you're thinking things out. You're thinking them out. And so the one thing I will say to you, and I know this is odd to hear after I was so went so strongly about your vision and everything like that. I think what you're looking at is very, very smart in the sense that the evidence in front of you recently suggests that at this time, people are going to be looking at things more closely. And maybe this executive that's on the line with you is looking out for you saying, look, people are going to look at anything you're doing right now, anything they can take and rally around to say, and another Opie and Anthony disciple did this. And so that's why in my mind, I suggested the compromise of holding it and waiting for a time at the end of the first season or the beginning of the second season or whatever it is. So you still have your vision, you still have what you're doing and you haven't lost your voice. Well, that's, you know, it's, that's kind of the issue. It's not even about getting necessarily in trouble. It's, uh, I just, I have so much, usually an artist does not get, like even with Chappelle's show, I'm sure, or with uh, Seth MacFarlane, I'm sure those guys had things that were squashed. Like Dave's first sketch uh, was so amazing and hard-hitting, but I'm sure there's plenty of things he wanted to do that they pushed back on. And the same with Seth. Uh, you know, even South Park occasionally has gotten shut down. It's And, and I don't want to be so stubborn when I've, they've given me 90% control, which is more than most people get, and the, on the very few notes they give me to go like, fuck that, you, you know what I mean? It's almost like... And the character that they're uncomfortable with, um, I've shot two sketches over out of four shows. And the character is? He's a pedophile. Um, 
there's no children in the sketch, but he's a pedophile. And it's it's definitely something, if you're not familiar with me and the history of the character, you would look at it and go, oof. And one of them, they're fine with the sketches. They just feel that I think two is too much. And the one that's a little more uncomfortable, they're going like, we got to you know give it a little bit of time. Like I'm looking at it detached and he's not being unreasonable and he's not, you know what I mean? And I'm not saying that just to give the right answer. I mean, I really, this is my dilemma because I'm arrogant and I'm a performer and I'm a solo actor. I like to think what I want to think and nobody tells me what to say on stage. But you know, who does a show where they get zero notes? It just doesn't happen. You know, Louie can do that now, but I did lucky Louie. HBO is there every Wednesday and every Thursday giving a lot of notes, you know, and he was Louis C.K. by then. So, you know, a lot of the notes were very good, too. A lot of them were bad, but a lot of them were very smart notes. So I don't want to be so stubborn that I defend something that I'll look back on and go, you fucking dumbbell. This guy actually had a point and you were so married to the arrogance of being in control that you ignored the bigger picture that he was being really smart and his one step away like me walking that last 90 feet in some ways may make me like so uh, focused on something that I miss a mistake. Does that make any sense too? I'm having a discussion with you. I hear what you say and I'm forceful about what I believe. And then I stick around to hear you talk more about things and how it is and give more evidence of whatever it is you're going through. And then I realize what the right, I don't mean to say the right answer, but the answer that I think would be the most beneficial to you. When I put my manager hat on, whenever somebody writes a check to you to put something on television, you lose control. Normally you lose control because there's somebody who gets paid an amount of money to justify their existence on the project. That's just the way it is. You know, Michael Wright at TBS and TNT might say, my biggest philosophy is you give the artist their check, you give their artist their license to do whatever they want, and you get the fuck out of the way. But if you were to have that guy come up to you and say, listen, I saw your set at the St. Denis Theater, and you know that last bit you did there... You know, I think it would be better if you did this, 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 and this. And you wouldn't be sitting in a hotel room with me saying, gee, I wonder if I should have done that, this, or that. So in this case, I'm actually going to reverse what I originally said because you have to go with your instincts and your gut as an artist, as an executive, as anybody. And your gut is telling you, Hmm, this guy has given me like a handful of notes ever. He believes in me. He's given me my own show. It's in his best interest for me to win because if I win, he wins. And so he's mentioning this not just creatively, but out of love for me and love for my talent and the love to want the world not to get down on me like they've gotten down on Jason Biggs or or Anthony from Opie and Anthony. And this is a critical time because the world is in a way now where 
TMZ has changed the face of the way the world looks. It used to be the Boston Herald, you know, or the New York Post, where it's like, you know, the New York Times would be like Michael Jackson has bought the bones of the elephant man. And then you'd pick up the New York Post. Jacko is wacko. Right. And it's so... And now TMZ is permeating into our subculture, every part of our lives. And now it's TMZ sports. And now if you're a sports personality, you do something. And so it's a time, believe it or not, of some of the greatest censorship of our time, because it's not the censorship of the world or the country. It's the knowledge in your mind that you have to self-censor yourself because you're worried about something being grabbed onto, taken out of context, and then you lose your job. So again, in a long-winded way, my advice to you, which you are not asking for, (laughs) is to go with your instincts. And I know that every call you make to Louie and every call you make to Colin, in the end, the major advice that anybody would give anybody, including yourself, is go with your gut. And you shared on this podcast that your gut is telling you, hmm, maybe there's something to that. Maybe I should hold it. And that's what the answer is. And and 99% of the time when your gut tells you that, it's right. Yeah, and, and, and the evidence around it points to the fact that that's kind of the right call because, again, if it was somebody that gave me so many notes and said, don't say this, you'll get in trouble, but it's not like that. Not one monologue joke in four episodes and they say, hey, could you... And, and some of them are pretty harsh. I mean, the, I, Whitney Cummings is on one of the shows and I did about six minutes on Donald Sterling. That was... They loved it. They, there was nothing. So the one time they step in and go, look, could you... I can't be an arrogant idiot, you know? And, and I think that's the problem with performers sometimes. Because I look back on stuff I've done, I've got certain regrets about things I wrote because they came out too harsh. I didn't get in trouble for them. You know, my book, I Hate Your Guts, was written after Imus got fired. I was very angry about that. Nappy-headed hose, and he hadn't violated any FCC. I went crazy. I was so angry at the language policing uh, over this guy getting fired over a joke. And I wrote a pretty harsh book where I just attacked people who I didn't like. And it kind of did feel good in a way. But I attacked a few people too harsh and I wish I hadn't. Like, I regret that. Zero trouble for it. No one came after me. But as a person, I didn't take a long enough step back and think about what I was doing. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to make that mistake with this. Like, where I just, I'm fucking pig-headed and I walk through it. And I realize, you idiot. You should have just listened to this guy. And then you could have done this sketch, you know, six months from now. Once the show was established and people were comfortable. Like, it was that simple. And every comedian I respect has made those moves. You know, you think Colin does 100% of what he wanted or Louis on his show? No, of course not. You know, so I have to just be smart about it. So, Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. 
I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Well, Colin has the greatest example of anything, and it shows how Lorne Michaels operates and how I feel like he's in a situation where I truly believe he's one of the greatest minds of any generation. But I was very close to Saturday Night Live, and I was had a lot of cast members on the show. And Lorne was of the philosophy of how he managed that no artist was greater than the show. And for his unique talent and amazing capacity to create things that were unlike anybody else at a desk, Norm MacDonald was becoming bigger than the show. And his sense of entitlement were becoming bigger than the show. And the way he navigated through the walls of SNL and how he spoke on certain occasions were different than when he first came to the show. And everybody watched the show, always looked forward to Norm MacDonald. And then there was one Christmas vacation where everybody went their own way and went on their vacations. And you came back in January and you turned on Saturday Night Live. And Colin Quinn was in the chair saying, hey, everybody, I don't I don't know exactly know why I'm here, but I'm here and uh, let's go. And so Colin had two examples in front of him. His instinct at the show was to work as hard as he could and be as innovative as he could and keep his head down and not say something within the walls that would get people down or take them out of the game to want to work with him, which was an instinct that it was against how he normally is because he likes to speak his mind, similarly to what you said about the anger and this weekend. And then he saw the example of how somebody could feel too big about themselves and lose it all. I'm not saying Norm MacDonald has lost it all. Norm is a a brilliant artist and he can have anything he wants. But you mean the gig, the all in the sense of that gig. That yeah. gig. And so for you, the examples are all before you and they're happening now as well. So it's like you have a lot on your mind and you deserve to have a lot in your mind. And the world, the way it's working now is making it that way for you and all artists. Yeah, you know, it's uh, SNL is a great example you gave, too, because I've never been close to that show, but I know that they'll cut things last minute all the time. Like, that's a part of that gig. You know that you're going to write something that you love and is funny and killed in rehearsal. And for whatever reason, they might just go, nah, it's not, and cut it. And every, how many guys at SNL can say they haven't had 50 things cut in the final rehearsal or whatever? It's just a part of it. So that's, that's part of what we do is we, you know, it, there is a certain sense of, comp, a sense of compromise you have to make as a performer. You know, there's times I'm, I'm doing a gala tonight. I'm doing the Seth Rogen gala. The compromise I'm making is that I'm not going to just walk up and use any language I want to use because they've told me it's a clean thing for Canadian TV. So I kind of, I have a decision to make. Do I either go, well, fuck them. I don't do that. 
and not do the gig because I want to do the gig. Or do I just go, okay, I'm going to work clean because that's what's required. So you do make compromises all the time as a performer. Um, most of my dilemma is based in self-centeredness and arrogance that uh, I just don't like to compromise. You know, and I hate to admit that about myself. I hate to admit that even alone. Like all of this is about me being a fucking baby who doesn't like to hear no. But that's a lot of my problem. Well, it's been a lot of my problem too. I don't like to hear no, which goes back to the original thing we talked about. So if you don't mind, I'd like to just reset where we were. You're a teenager. You're making girls laugh. But now you have to go into the world. You have to make a living. And did you know what you wanted to do at that point heading into your 20s? It's all I ever wanted was comedy. From the time I was 12 and I saw Richard Pryor, I, I was like, filmed live in concerts from Long Beach. That, that's when I knew what you did with being funny. Like, oh, that, that's the trend. I knew being funny felt good, but I didn't know what you would do with that. But then I saw that and I understood that's what I want to do. I want to have that physical effect on people because it was a give and take. You know, you watch prior work and then they would show like a side shot of him in the audience and he was hitting the audience and they were moving. It was a really weird, almost like a, a string was attached to them. And I realized that's what I want to do. It's when you watch life. those specials, you realize that Richard Pryor and the audience were like the beach and the waves. Right. Exactly. Yeah, um, it, it, they were connected in some way, but I didn't think I'd ever do it. So, uh, you know, I dropped out of high school after a, uh, it was a fake suicide attempt. I say fake because if I wanted to be dead, I'd be dead. It was more an attention-seeking thing. Um, I went to rehab. There's a lot of suicide attempts that are fake suicide attempts that become yeah fatal, and there's a lot of things that happen that people do like lend bias that aren't even suicide attempts that become fatal. Right. So you have to acknowledge that a part of you knew the risk. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to, I get stitches in my wrist. Like, I mean, it was, a, it was a bad incident. What brought you to that incident? Because from what you're telling me is like, you're using humor to, you, you know, you lose your virginity at 18. You're getting women with your humor. I think this is when I was 17. I don't think I was, uh, I wound up, this was New Year's Eve of 85 going to 86, and I'd cut myself a bunch. There was something about it that felt cathartic, even though it was, it was all A, attention-seeking, and B, it felt kind of cathartic to bleed. The first time you did it, how did it come about, and what was the impetus for it? You know, I don't remember, because I was probably in a partial blackout, but I always carried a box cutter, because um, I worked in warehouses and in Bradley's and in, you know, ShopRite and shit, and you would need these box cutters to slice these boxes open. I don't remember. I got mad at something. Oh, yeah. I, it might have been one of the first times I got drunk, but I got really mad at something. I don't remember why I sliced myself, but I did. And I think it might have been in the back of my arm. And the fact that it was bleeding felt kind of, you know, you think you're cool at 17, you know, as a douche. But it also felt uh, good in a way I really can't explain. People that have done it understand that. But there's something that you feel like something is happening. You're doing something and getting a result, even if it's an awful result. Um, so I kind of became accustomed to doing that. And, you know, a lot of times it was, it was relatively bad where I was scarred up. And then the one time I did it way worse than I meant to. Um, and that was when my family said, you got to go away. So when I was 17, they forced me into a rehab for 30 days. Um, 
And that was why I didn't win Class Clown, because, you know, they gave away Class Clown. But, you know, the, the photos were taken in January of 86. When the Challenger blew up, I was in rehab. Um, you know, and they didn't want to send anybody to a fucking rehab. Photograph somebody with a white bandage on his wrist. Class Clown. <laughs> fucking awful. <laughs> so um, I drank for another year after that. So you got out of rehab and you started drinking again? Yeah, yeah. I drank in the rehab with my roommate. You drank in the rehab? Yeah, I had a... How was that possible? We used to go out to 12-step meetings. And one time we went out to 12-step meetings and my roommate, Dwayne, guy from Trenton who was older than me, snuck out to the liquor store, bought himself a pint of wine or uh, bought me a half pint of vodka. We went back to the room and he downed the wine and I drank the vodka. And... um, they found out about it that we drank, and I lied in group and said I didn't drink because I didn't want to get sent to a longer facility. And um, went back out. I just could never get back into school. So that was kind of the end of the education was senior year of high school. I just kind of stopped going. So when's the first time you go on stage? What Three happens? years sober. I was 21. I, went to, I got sober February of 87. Now, how did you do that? I just had enough. I, just, I was giving advice. I was drunk giving advice to a friend of mine who was ruining his life. And my girlfriend at the time, who I actually fucked the first time, uh, you know, I lost my virginity too, was going to leave me. And I was 18. I was like, let me just try getting sober because my father's been sober since I was two. Um, so the lineage is in your family. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a whole bunch of drunks. His father was a drunk. Yeah, it's just all of us. The bloodline is filled with it. So I started uh, going to these 12-step meetings. And uh, it sucked. And I hated it. And uh, I thought my life was over. I was sitting in a church basement talking to two sober guys. They're eating cheese and crackers and they're talking about a morning radio show. And I remember just thinking like, this is fucking awful. I'm never going to be funny again. I'm never going to laugh again. And, um, so after three years of that, I finally tried stand up with a friend of mine who was sober, came with me. Wow. Talk about the first material you wrote and what you did and where you went on and what the result was. First joke I ever did on stage was a terrible joke. It was something about scientists had discovered a black hole, and then it turned out it was just Oprah Winfrey Lay and Spread Eagle. That was the first joke I ever told on stage. It was a giant Oprah Winfrey vagina joke, and it didn't get a laugh. It got nothing. Um, and that was the weird part for me, was hearing my voice projected over a microphone and not hearing anything back. You know, your friends, anything you say, they laugh at, you have that relationship. I didn't have that with an audience. So I didn't understand that you have to establish something, be comfortable. You told me actually when I was in 1997, I was seven years in at that point or 96. I used to psych myself out before gigs. They're going to fucking hate me. I had to do that. And you were, we were in the comic strip and you said one time, one day you're not going to need that. You're just going to walk into a room and be funny. You told me that. And I was like, that was one thing I always remembered that I wouldn't need to get myself into a headspace. Of being negative. And I remember that. The comic strip, there was this little area that you went through where there was like, I don't know, some kind of a dish. There was dishes or a thing, and you went through the side area to get to the walk out to the stage, and there was a little sound booth. Yep. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I popped my head in, and you were like... I'm not going to say you were doing exercises, but you were doing some kind of like, like you're pacing. It was almost like you were track runner getting ready for a meet. I'm not saying you were stretching. Right, or I know what like you that, mean, yeah. And I think that's when I saw you and I said that to you because that's interesting you remember that. Oh, yeah. That was one piece of advice I remembered uh, for a long time is you never have to do anything to get yourself ready to be funny. 
You know, you just got to go on stage and be funny. So that was, a very, that was probably the most important thing you taught me was that one moment because that's one thing. It's the only bit of advice I can ever remember a manager or agent giving me that I actually remember specifically when I got it and where I got it. Oh, thanks, man. That's, no, it's true. That means a lot to that me. That was very helpful because it saved me a lot of agony and a lot of self-doubt, which I still have anyway, but nowhere near what it used to be. You know, um, I'm not psyched out. The crowd's going to hate me. If they do, they do. When's the first time a set all came together and you crushed and people were coming up to you and saying, holy shit. That you know, was amazing. That's, that's a good question. I don't remember the first set, because, but I remember the time of it. It was at, when I used to go to Rascals in New Jersey and do these open mics uh, in, in Ocean Township. Or uh, Jim Florentine would take me to the Playpen Lounge, which was a disaster. Um, and I don't think it was a whole set that convinced me. I think it was moments in the set that the other comedians liked and then I would come off stage and the other comedian would go that was really funny when you talked about it. and it was usually the self-deprecating or the self-revealing stuff so it was like guys like Bob Levy and Jim Florentine and other like local headliners those guys when, when they would first tell me that I was funny that is what kind of kept me going it was, I don't think it was ever just a killer set when did you know in your heart that you were Never going to go back and do a day job at Bradley's again. After I, well, I, I bombed so badly. It was the night before Desert Storm happened. And um, I, I bombed terribly on stage and I was going to quit comedy. I was six or eight months into it. And I remember crying as I drove home and thinking that this dream was gone. You know, Was that the first time you ever cried about stand-up? Yeah. And I'm like, it was horrible. It was, and how many times in your life... Had you cried before that moment that you remember, like really cried about something? Many times, actually. I'm a blubbering idiot. Many times before and since. Like I, my, my ex-girlfriend was a fucking, she was a lizard. Like nothing made her emotional. Me, I watched the first season of Lost. I cried all the, I'm like fucking <laughs> horrible. with it. But I kind of like that about myself because it makes me feel, you know, at least connected. Uh, but I remember uh, that night thinking it's never going to get this bad again. It's never going to hurt this bad again. Um, and from that moment on, I knew that it's it's either going to be this or I'm going to throw myself off a building. Not I wasn't even depressed when I thought that. I'm like, but those are your options. And I worked for, I think, another year at a day job. And once I got fired from that, I said, I'll never have another day job. And I haven't. So I think from 1992 to now, um, I've, I've never worked again. I just want to let you know if you ever want to get a gift for somebody special, you can do so at our merch store at berrycats.com. We have a ton of shirts in many different colors with a plethora of the most impactful quotes from the podcast that have resonated with you throughout the years. I know you're going to like them a lot. They're really, really special and of the highest, highest quality. And it's a special gift from me to you for any item you choose. You can take an extra $5 off by just typing in the promo code Barry. So just go to BarryCats.com, to the store, check it out. I know you won't be disappointed. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary 
surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out, and we have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com. Check it out. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. There's nothing worse than a lazy performer. You have to be there. Always work at it. And uh, don't self-sabotage. That's the temptation, too, is because we're afraid and I don't want to be realized as a fraud that I want to run away and hide. So I look for things to go wrong so I can run away and hide because that removes the risk of failing. So don't self-destruct. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. you get out the money. All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.